If a work has a title, then the title is important. So when a composer calls a work Harold in Italy and adds the description symphony in four movements with a viola solo, we're either left cold or fishing about trying to make connections. The only thing Berlioz would have expected his audience to know already is that the Harold in question is Lord Byron's child Harold, the hero of Child Harold's pilgrimage. Byron had died ten years before Berlioz composed his symphony at the Battle of Missolonghi, the start of his campaign for Greek independence. And although he probably died from illness, his death at the battlefield helped to make him the centre of the romantic cult of the artist as hero. That much Berlioz's audience would have known and warmed to as they sat down to listen. But is this Italy? If this is Italy, it's strangely inhospitable. And so our mind fills with more and more questions. Could this cold landscape have some deeper significance? And what will be the role of the viola? Harold in Italy is full of puzzles like this. Puzzles, because even today Berlioz's music sounds so unconventional. Time after time, he breaks with tradition, throws out the rule books, and lets the music become the carrier of his distinctive poetic vision. As we will find, that vision is at times a highly personal one. Back to this perplexing introduction, though, and that strange new melody from the woodwind, chant-like. The melody is so slow compared to everything else that we barely notice it as anything more than a supporting colonnade to start with. And listen how the string accompaniment threatens to subvert the proper order of things. Mm -hmm. 
A classical accompaniment should be just that, an accompaniment. But Berlioz devises accompaniments which seem to be thematic and motivic in themselves. The themes almost fall into the background. Here's that passage in context now. It leads in some very unexpected directions. Very puzzling. A solo viola, that most introverted of orchestral instruments, follows on from that broad tutti with a simple harp accompaniment. It's the complete antithesis to all that's gone before. Private, soloistic, diatonic. For its time, this was a startling, uncompromising modernism. It spells loneliness. Did you recognize what the viola soloist was playing there? It's that woodwind theme from earlier, in the minor then, now in the major, and rhythmically simpler. Berlioz lifted this melody, lock, stock and barrel, from his youthful, Walter Scott-inspired, Rob Roy overture. For all the Scottish influence, that work was composed, as it happens, in Italy. 
By coincidence, another young man Berlioz met in Italy at the same time was also caught in the twin glare of Italian and Caledonian inspiration. Felix Mendelssohn, who was busily finishing the Hebrides overture while drinking in the sunlight of the South. So the audience consults its program book and sees that this movement is called Harold in the Mountains. The peaks are clearly looming over us. Berlioz has painted a backdrop of a remote and inhospitable region, and now he's brought on his protagonist. A viola soloist is a curious thing to find in a symphony. At the front of the score, Berlioz says that the viola player should stand close to the audience. That's understandable. But remote from the orchestra, and the harp should be close to the soloist. So the disposition of the instruments adds to the sense of alienation in the drama. In emotional terms, Berlioz has set the scene in lavish detail, and this is the introduction to a symphony, albeit a symphony with solo viola. Berlioz's audience would hardly have been surprised. His Symphonie Fantastique had had a similarly expansive introduction, apart from the many other novel features that followed on from it, but this introduction lasts over eight minutes. But enough of the introduction. Now for some action. The viola waits while the orchestra enthuses, and then cautiously tries the new idea out, note for note, until the first movement proper gets underway. In terms of form, this first movement is on the surface quite traditional. We've had an introduction, a first main theme, and Berlioz now follows it with a second contrasting idea. When that idea is repeated, Berlioz adds a distinctive decoration. The theme is shadowed at one quaver's distance, a feature that's difficult to pick up in the melee, but adds significantly to the feel of the music, rather like the deep sheen created by much overlaying in an oil painting. And that, believe it or not, is about all there is to this main section. In terms of length, it's much shorter than the expansive introduction, barely more than a minute long. After an eight-minute intro, hardly classically proportioned, and with none of the harmonic arguments we'd normally expect to find. It's almost as though Berlioz is simply adopting the skeleton form of the symphonic first movement to honor tradition. 
but there's nothing of the spirit of that tradition here, as indeed why should there be? Berlioz's imagination has been caught by the idea of the wandering romantic hero, epitomised by Byron's outcast, Child Harold. And he seeks to explore that in more theatrical ways, by exploiting the gulf that exists between the self-effacing soloist, the solo viola who stands perhaps for Harold, and the orchestra, which may be represents the outer world of human activity. Before we know it, we're launched into a new section, a development. Exactly how Berlioz develops his ideas is somewhat beside the point. Instead, our attention's grabbed by a violent opposition between the viola's plaintive meditation and those rude orchestral interruptions, which unsuccessfully attempt to overwhelm the viola. Harold, the lonely romantic hero, guilt-ridden and unable to access the simple joys of ordinary men, juxtaposing the private world of feelings and ideas with the real world of action and struggle. Alienation is a recurring theme. The crisis will come in the finale, the Bacchic celebration of the brigands' orgy. For Berlioz, drama is always the driving force behind his musical techniques and he's never afraid to push the boundaries of received compositional wisdom. Towards the end of the movement, the double basses begin a very curious passage. And so on. It's a shadow of the Harold motto theme from the introduction. Here it is as a reminder. Now, the cellos answer the basses in simple imitation, but with faster notes. Why does Berlioz have the basses in normal triple division of the beat, but the celli dividing it into four? I can only guess. But he could have been influenced by the grumbling basses at the end of the storm movement in Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, music which Berlioz knew intimately. Beethoven gives the cello and basses slightly different division of the beat there to cloud the harmony. But here in Italy, the harmony isn't clouded, nor indeed is it particularly stormy at the moment. Besides, the rest of the strings go one step further, dividing the beat into sixes. The sparks of Berlioz's vivid musical imagination fly again. <laughs> 
The spirit of Beethoven hangs over much of this writing. Berlioz admired Beethoven and knew what he was up to. Nevertheless, the Frenchman had a very different approach to writing a symphony, at its simplest, making it into a personalised drama. The vestiges of tradition remain, but they're put to very individual ends, and that's something we sense at the end of this movement, especially in concert. It feels very abrupt, partly explained by its strange proportions. That slow introduction makes up half the total, and the theme it presented seems to have had only the scantiest bearing on what followed. But this dichotomy is part of Berlioz's intention. This music is all about the split between the outside world of action and joy and the inner world of the poet trying to make sense of it all. In the second movement of Harold in Italy, Berlioz recalls an event he probably witnessed. He calls it Procession of Pilgrims Singing the Evening Hymn. But I think for once we don't need Berlioz to tell us any of that. His evocation is so accurate that we would have been there without the aid of programme books and movement titles. Berlioz begins with the chiming of a bell. Surely an evening bell. These evening sounds are answered by the strains of a distant hymn. Just for a moment, a high bell sounds on flute, clarinet and harp. Simple and effective, and a striking contrast to the gloomy toxin of the opening, which continues to be sounded between the lines of the hymn. The poetic intent of this music is similar to the second movement of Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony also generally regarded as a pilgrim's march, and by a strange coincidence, Mendelssohn completed his Italian symphony the very year Berlioz began his. They had met in Italy for the first time in 1831. The simple piety of ordinary folk was something that appealed to Berlioz, and here he contrasts the comfort they derived from their time-honoured communal ritual with the solitary questioning of the poet and philosopher. At first he has nothing to say, the movement proceeds without the viola soloist. 
The hymn is simple, each line in exactly the same rhythm as the previous, and it gets closer and closer as the bells continue their chiming. last, Harold is moved to speak, and the viola makes its presence felt with a statement of the motto theme heard complete for the first time since the first movement introduction. Now we begin to understand why that introduction was so long. As the viola sings, the pilgrims continue to approach in a long, carefully controlled and orchestrated crescendo. At their closest point, the dynamic is reversed. The pilgrims begin to move away. The orchestra begins a long, almost imperceptible decrescendo. And as they do, the viola soloist becomes more involved with them, adding a decorative accompaniment to the simple tread of the hymn. chorale-like theme, first in the wind, then the strings. The viola accompanies once again, a strange occupation for a soloist, even in a quasi-concerto. This solo is marked sul ponticello, playing close to the bridge of the instrument, a disembodied sound with its implication of emotional distance. The viola's unwillingness, or inability, to become involved with the orchestra is a striking feature of this music. Admittedly, it has a musical cause, the comparatively quiet instrument set against a largish orchestra, including four bassoons, as well as four horns, two trumpets, and three trombones. But that also suits Berlioz's dramatic purpose. The viola, like Harold, is a lonely outsider. It chimed well with Berlioz's own experience. He had travelled in Italy on a scholarship, and, just as Byron had mused on his personal experiences in Child Harold, 
So Berlioz reminisces on his Italian sojourn. Many actual events and places, the detailed titles tell that, with himself as Harold. He's in fact Harold the tortured artist, observing the world, but unable to access it. The conception of this second movement is very simple. A procession approaches, some kind of hymn is sung, and then the procession moves off, all observed by the protagonist. Bells sound throughout. But the execution is extremely subtle. The repeated pilgrim's hymn never bores. It combines effortlessly with the viola's long-drawn-out motto theme. And as the pilgrims disappear, their theme gradually disappears. In the first instance, the top line goes, and we're left to imagine the tune hinted at by the harmonic movement of the lower strings. Gradually, as the pilgrims go out of earshot, the tune breaks up, leaving us with those opposing chimes from the bells, which we heard right at the start of the movement. Those last bars feature the viola arpeggios again, but without the chorale. Curiously empty. The power of this image is such that I believe Berlioz was recalling images he, rather than Byron, had observed. And I have no problem imagining them. A year ago, I spent a holiday in the mountainous north of Portugal. Several churches around us chimed the hour across the lake-filled valleys, playing a very simple hymn tune, but always slightly out of phase. That wouldn't have been out of place in this symphony. In the fields below, a woman sang the sort of folk song one thought had disappeared a century earlier. The effect was magical. I'll never forget it. This slow movement ends in the perfect quiet of a night in the mountains. After it, the third movement is beautifully contrasted. Serenade of an Abruzzi mountaineer to his mistress. A drone from oboe, clarinets and bassoon evokes a hurdy-gurdy, and even though there's no actual break in the sound, Berlioz asks them to accent the beginning of each bar like the additional pressure brought to bear as the hurdy-gurdy handle is turned.
And that's all we hear of the opening dance for now. In effect, the first part of a scherzo, and not a word from the viola. This abruzzi mountaineer has things other than dancing on his mind, and his serenade quickly follows. The nasal sound of the cor anglais evokes perfectly for me the leather larynxed tenor of this weather-beaten lover. mountaineer gives vent to his passion, and still no sound from the soloist, Harold or Berlioz or whoever. But who's this emerging from out of the shadows? symphony's motto theme combines with the music of the serenade, and just as in the second movement it remains virtually unchanged, almost as though the different experiences in Italy leave Harold untouched. And eventually the motto is taken up by the whole string section led by the soloist, all the world loves a lover. In the end, it's almost as though the sincerity of the simple man's love song is too much for our hero to bear. He turns sadly away. The opening dance returns, but now somewhat distant and less infectious. The viola, however, can't forget what he's just heard, and in a wonderfully imagined section, the soloist recalls some of the phrases of the serenade, growing sadder as he does while the flutes sing out the motto theme as though from some great height. The scene gradually dissolves, and the third movement reaches its conclusion, perhaps the most picturesque in the symphony. The music certainly conjures up a scene of almost operatic realism. Our hero, caught up for a moment in the world of men, observes their loves and joys. He takes particular note of the honest lover serenading his girl, is himself drawn towards the flame of this love, and realises, even as he begins to sing himself, that he cannot partake. We can only guess the reason, but it's not important. The point is that mal d'isolement, that solitary sickness which Berlioz describes in his memoirs, read in Byron and portrayed in his music, in the Symphonie Fantastique, here in Harold, and later in his Romeo and Juliet symphony. The finale seems to me to be almost pure fantasy. 
Berlioz calls it Orgy of the Brigands. The orchestra explodes in a wild, thrashing rhythm, Allegro. <laughs> An abrupt pause brings us the first of many reminiscences from previous movements. First, six bars of the fugue idea from the beginning of the symphony, with the viola eloquently joining in the bassoon's descending chromatic phrase. Other reminiscences follow in like manner. The Pilgrim's Hymn, the Mountaineer's Serenade, then back again to the first movement. It's not a symphonic process in the classical sense. Juxtaposition is the point rather than integration. The episodes are led by the soloist, as though trying to make sense of what he's witnessed. But the experiences don't add up. They remain disconnected, and the final quotation from the Adagio is barely recognisable as such. graphic portrayal of an individual being swamped by the tide of life. There's a Beethovenian willfulness about those last chords. They're made up of something surprisingly tame in the upper strings, but with a wildly dissonant ninth added in the bass. Sixty years later, another musical revolutionary got into trouble for using just that chord. His name was Schoenberg. The chord occurred in his transfigured night and caused it to be rejected for performance in Vienna. Paris in 1834 wasn't so uptight. Anyway, brigands haven't learned harmony, and they rush in with their Bacchic revels.
the energy dissipates itself in cascades of descending semitones, which have been trying to drag the music down since the very start, and seem to imply that all these high spirits are in reality an orgy of despair. The climax of this section is one of the most extraordinary passages in the whole symphony. It's built from a sturdy trill from the first violins, supported by dissonant repeated notes from the seconds. Underneath, the wind pushed through a series of harmonies which are only related because they all use the note D or E flat. In between, an outlandish bass contingent, consisting of clarinets, no fewer than four bassoons, trombones and tuba, lurch around drunkenly, vomiting curses, as Berlioz described it. Put that together and you begin to appreciate something of Berlioz's unprecedented ability to harness the full power of a symphony orchestra. For all the drama of this bacchanal, we mustn't overlook one vital detail. The soloist, or rather lack of soloist. In fact, he's missing from a vast expanse of this finale. What's happened? Has he been completely swamped in the melee? The great Paganini certainly had some thoughts of his own on the subject. When he saw the preliminary sketches, he turned down the work. Too many rests was his complaint. And I suppose three hundred bars of silence while the brigands indulge in devilish excess would have been a bit much for a man who was reputed to have made a pact with the devil. But when he eventually heard the symphony some years later, he came and knelt before Berlioz, and with his son as interpreter, presented him with a huge sum of money, so big that it made it possible for Berlioz to write his next symphony, Romeo and Juliet. But the soloist's silence is symbolic of a more poetic element, the loneliness of the artist in the hurly-burly of life. As such, the finale is the most dramatic example of the split running throughout this work, which Berlioz deliberately exploits, the split between the outer world of action and the inner world of artistic creation. Harold, or maybe Berlioz himself, can never be at one with humanity at large. Before the symphony is over, Berlioz creates one more theatrical illusion to underline this. The tumult subsides momentarily, and three solo strings can be heard in the wings, intoning the pilgrim's hymn one last eerie time. The viola soloist joins the pilgrims, as though in the hope of some final salvation. The effect is extraordinary, though what it portends is more difficult to interpret. Perhaps, just perhaps, Berlioz was picturing a place for himself in a more spiritual place, 
away from the unbridled excesses of Earth. Thank you.